0: Why don't you go up into Ray Farmer's office, pull your pants down and take a shit on his desk. And he's like, that's about what you have to do and they'll trade you the next day. (laughs) Hey, when was the
1: last time you seriously considered your dreams? I mean, come on, you used to think about them all the time. What happened? I say it's time that you and your dreams got back together. I mean, think about it. You could live the van life in a totally customized Mercedes-Benz Sprinter. You could tour all 423 national parks, build a mountain cabin with your dad, or even start up your own business. Really, whatever you wanna dream up. And it's a Mercedes-Benz van we're talking about here, kids. So expect innovative safety features like crosswind assist and blind spot assist. Expect amazing performance and reliability with an MBUX voice command system, a five-star dealer network, and an available gas engine. It runs like, well, a dream. So what do you say? Head to the Mercedes-Benz dealership and get that Sprinter van. Tell them your dream sent you. Hey everybody, what's up? Trey Wingo here. Welcome into another episode of season five of Half Forgotten History. As you know by this point, we're partnering with my good friends at Mercedes-Benz Sprinter Vans for season five because they help dreams come true. And the athletes I talked to all saw their dreams come true out on the football field. This week's guest is very interesting. He has one of the greatest streaks in the history of the NFL. And normally when you retire, they say you've gone fishing. Well, before his career began, He went fishing. I'm talking, of course, about longtime offensive lineman for the Cleveland
0: Browns, Joe Thomas.
1: Well, first of all, Joe, where the hell is the rest of you? Like, stop (laughs) losing weight.
0: Uh, I wish I could lose just a couple more. Then I could eat a little bit more this weekend when I go and hang out with my buddies. That's the best part, you know. You get a little slimmer and you can eat and drink and enjoy life just a little bit more. All right, so you, you played at what, like 310, 311, something like that? Yeah, I was in my career I was between 300 and 325, so... As I got older and slower, I tried to lose a little bit of weight to compensate.
1: And what are you at now?
0: I'm like 255, 260. That's kind
1: of where I, I try to stay. And, and what was the impetus for it? Like, you know, I mean, because I, I, I get it, like retired linemen go one of two ways, right? Yeah, you you know, either do the Joe Thomas thing or you go really in the opposite direction. Was that sort of the motivation?
0: Yeah, you know, I was always kind of a smaller guy. When I got to college as a freshman, I was like 250. I was a tight end in high school, and so they had to kind of gain weight and, you know, force feed me like a foie gras duck to put that pounds on that I needed. Um, And then, you know, that's one of the tough things about NFL players and why you mentioned a lot of guys go the other way is because you learn to overeat. You kind of turn off that signal in your brain of when to stop when you're full because you're burning so many calories on the football field that you really have to just – eat constantly until you just feel like you're overflowing um, at all times in order to just kind of maintain the energy levels that you need on the football field. So for me, I kind of wanted to go back to a little bit more of a healthy weight, kind of more of a healthy eating lifestyle, eat more of my my vegetables and maybe cut out some of the sugars that I was consuming to, you know, keep that weight on. But more than anything, my doctor told me, hey, you got a really bad knee. Like you're going to need a knee replacement In 10 years, there's really nothing else we can do. You're bone on bone. And so really the best thing you can do is just lose weight because, you know, the more that you weigh, it's actually like three times body weight goes through your knee with force. Um, And so if you can lose that weight, you're going to be able to kind of extend the life of your joints. And that was all I need to hear.
1: Well, you're clearly a trendsetter in terms of this. I know swimming is a big part of this. So you, you, yeah. you've you've gone, like you're so aerodynamic now. So you're starting a trend to be an underwear model uh, as a former offensive lineman. You also started a trend when you were drafted. You were the first guy I can remember that was going to be a top, top pick that decided, yeah, I'm not going to go. I'm just going to go fishing with my dad. Did, did you in any way, shape, or form realize that a lot of people would start doing that after they saw you do it?
0: Yeah, I had no idea that it would become kind of a trend, but I I think people were just afraid to, like, think about the decision. It was just something that guys didn't even think about. Oh, I got invited to the draft? Yeah, I definitely want to be there. And I was like, whoa, 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 hang on a second. Like, I don't really want to go out there and buy a new suit and sweat it out in the green room for four or five hours with a bunch of people I don't really know and then go hug Roger Goodell, who I've never met before in my life. Like, why can't I just spend this day hanging out with my family and go do something that I really enjoy? Because I know things are going to get pretty busy after the draft. You're going to be whisked away to whatever city draft. So you're going to go to rookie minicamp and you're going to do the media tour. So let's just kind of maybe take a break and go hang out with my buddies, hang out with my dad. Like that sounds like it's way more fun than going to New York and wearing a suit, especially for a lineman from Wisconsin. Did you have good cell service on the lake? Well, that was the funny thing. So uh, I originally was telling my agent, like, hey, I'm going to go fishing. I don't want to talk to anybody. Like, it's a stressful day if you just sit there and watch the TV, right? Especially for guys, you know, the Aaron Rodgers, the famous story, Brady Quinn about dropping in the draft. You sit there and you just sweat it out like you're waiting for your results from a final exam. But I was like, I I just don't want to be around it. And he was like, well, hang on a second. They need to be able to call you before they draft you because I guess a bunch of years ago there was a player – that sadly had passed away like recently before the draft. And he ended up getting drafted because this is oh. kind of before the days of obviously social media, but before the days of a lot of communication that was readily available. And so teams are gonna to wanna to talk to you, especially as a first round pick, right before they draft you. They wanna make sure that your situation hasn't changed. You didn't go out and party last night and break your leg, jumping over a bonfire or something <laughs> like that. And they wanna make sure that you didn't get arrested for doing something stupid the night before the draft. They want to make sure that everything is exactly the same right before they draft you. So you have to have cell service. So I said, all right, I'll make sure wherever we decide to fish is close enough to a cell tower that at the bare minimum, I can get a phone call from whoever drafts me and they can assure I can assure them that I haven't been arrested and I didn't break my leg last night.
1: So you go third overall to Cleveland. What was your initial reaction when they told you you were drafted by the Cleveland Browns?
0: I was overjoyed. My dad's side of the family all grew up in Toledo, Ohio. We used to do family reunions in the summer out in Toledo. I would always go out with all the guys and we'd go fishing on Lake Erie for walleyes. Um, And I had known that Cleveland was very similar to where I grew up in Milwaukee. And I'm sure you're probably shocked to hear this, but as a, uh, a, a boy growing up in Wisconsin, I was a little bit sheltered from the big city. I'd never traveled to like New York City before that. I didn't really spend a lot of time in Chicago. It was kind of intimidating. So the the idea that I got to go to a like a blue collar town in the Midwest was a very comforting feeling to me, especially to go to a fan base that was super passionate. That you know, growing up in Wisconsin as a Packer fan, I was very familiar with the Midwest small-town passion that uh, these areas have, especially like in the Rust Belt, for their professional football team. So I was overjoyed. I couldn't have been happier that I was going to get an opportunity to go play for the Browns.
1: And I think people need to understand, because a lot of people want to play for the Browns now. I mean, they're a <laughs> sexy team. Uh, you know, yeah. they have everything. Yeah. That was not the case. when you, no. you went to them right in the middle of probably the worst stretch in their
0: franchise's history. Yeah, they were not so good, and they actually uh, had a worse stretch uh, towards the end of my career, um, which is probably hard to imagine if you would have told me that when I got there because it seemed like everything was going in the right direction. Um, Phil Savage, they'd hired as a GM from the Baltimore Ravens. He was there, part of the team that put together the Super Bowl champion, uh, Baltimore Ravens. Um, Romeo Cornell had come from the Patriots. He's got all those Super Bowls when he was with New England, and then he coached with Parcells when Parcells was with the Giants, um, they were trending in the right direction. and actually my rookie year we won 10 and six. We had a quarterback Derek Anderson go to the Pro Bowl. so um, I definitely thought things were going in the right direction. and then they didn't and then they didn't um, and,
1: and, and, and and that's the hardest thing, right? Most players that are drafted. I mean, you get the Lenore Ryan colleges and the you know Soucu SIU Carbondale those those draft picks are made every year, but for the most part, Everybody that's drafted, especially high in, in the in the draft, is from a reputable program that wins 10, 11 games a year, and you're the best of the best. You're the you're the cream of the crop. You know, Wisconsin offensive line. That's that's a that's a badge of honor or a badger of honor, I guess, for lack of a better pun. You know, that's a thing. And then you have to
0: lose a lot most of the time. How hard was that transition mentally? Yeah, mentally, it's a really. Enormous strain, and it's hard to translate and let people understand. My, my senior year at Wisconsin, we went twelve and one. Year before that, I started. We were ten and three. Year before that, we were nine and three. So not a lot of losing as a starter at Wisconsin. Um, and then even losing six games my rookie year, I was like, Ah, man, it just doesn't it, it doesn't feel right. Like I don't understand it. Like I had a hard time coping. And it puts you in the dumps so much so that it made it difficult to come back to work the next week and kind of put that stuff behind you. And it sounds terrible for from a fan standpoint, but one of the things you have to learn in the NFL, no matter who you are, I don't care if you go to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the Chiefs, the Patriots, or like me to the Browns, you have to learn how to lose and not from a like on the field standpoint, but how to come back after you do lose or things that are bad happen to you because I don't care if you're playing left tackle or cornerback, there's going to be times on the field where you get beat. You, you lose an individual one-on-one matchup. And if you go in the dumps, that's going to just turn into another loss and another loss, and it's just going to snowball. And so one of the most important things that you do learn in the NFL early on, and I, th- I feel sort of blessed that I learned it in Cleveland, is... Hey, when you lose you need to crumple that up and and take the lessons from it but throw it in the trash bin and start focusing on what you can control which is what's coming down the pike which is usually another game a week away against another really good opponent
1: you know there were a couple of superstars for lack of a better name i think you played with you know obviously josh gordon had one of the greatest years in the history of the nfl in terms of wide receiver usage when he was suspended two games and still led the league in receiving yards that year (laughs) Uh, playing for three or four different quarterbacks that season. But you kind of became the face of the franchise. Um, And that's not easy to do as an offensive
0: lineman. Like, how did that sort of evolution happen? Well, yeah, it's kind of funny to even think about. um, But maybe that's a good vision into the problems that we had in Cleveland is, hey, your left tackle's the most famous guy in the team. He's the guy that everybody wants their, to wear the, his jersey. Uh, so maybe that was part of the issue. But um, I, I think part of it is just the city of Cleveland, very blue-collar, chip on its shoulder, Um, You know, had been down for a long time before I got there. Obviously now the team and the city are in a tremendous upswing and you wouldn't know by being in Cleveland, by being in First Energy Stadium on a Sunday, Um, but it's been through some dark times. And I think it kind of has built this blue collar mentality in that city, this us against the world type mentality. I mean, some of the famous shirts that people wear in Cleveland is Cleveland against the world. And I think as an offensive lineman, that's sort of always been our mentality. No matter who you are or where you play as an offensive lineman, we kind of consider ourselves mushrooms, right? We're the, uh, the things that you throw in a dark room, throw poop on them and expect great things to happen, right? And so it's, it's that brotherhood that you gain from only getting bad things heaped on you and never getting praise heaped on you. Because the only time you really talk about your offensive line is kind of when they get beat for the most part. Eh, You know, there are the John Maddens and the occasional announcers who really love heaping praise on the big guys. But for the most part, when you're watching film in that offensive meeting room, when the offensive line does something good, that coach is quick to hit the clicker to the next play. But when you do something bad, there's going to be five minutes of rewinding that sack that you gave up and talking about how you lost it for the team. So I I think a little bit of that – Like, screw you mentality. Kind of the people of Cleveland and offensive linemen, we really share that bond. And I think that was part of the reason why people in Cleveland kind of were drawn to me and offensive linemen play in general.
1: Look, my son played college football and he was a lineman. It's a miserable existence. You're right. Like, you (laughs) only get called out if you hold or give up a sack. But if Mm -hmm. you pull, and the running back runs right behind you, and was like, oh, great job by the running back. I'm like, wait a minute. That hole didn't exist until I knocked yeah. that guy on yeah. his ass, and I get nothing.
0: Yeah, yeah exactly. And I think part of the, the issue with it, I mean, it's just the way it is, is the offensive line technique and what we do is so complex. I mean, outside of quarterback play, there's no position that has to learn more than an offensive lineman. And our techniques are largely unknown. And why things happen, success, failure on the offensive lineman, most fans have no clue. Even most announcers that I listen to have no clue because unless you've sat in that seat for a long time in those meetings, offensive line play is foreign. And so you can't appreciate something that you don't understand. And so it is a lot easier to look at the running back when he scores a touchdown rather than what the offensive line did. Uh, But that's why I love being in media. I love allowing all those fans at home to understand the greatness of offensive line play and to appreciate the ballet that happens up front between the offense and defensive line
1: well, I'm glad you said that, because to me, this is my position about football, and it's never changed. Football is about one thing, one wall of men dominating another wall of men, which allows everything else to happen. You know, Teddy Bruschi has a great line. He says, take your eyes off the ball. You might really learn something when you're watching it.
0: <laughs> it's so true. I mean, I think people forget, like, the genesis of football. There was no passing when this game yeah. was invented. It was just a bunch of big men smashing their skulls against each other. There was not this downfield <laughs> passing game that we have come to enjoy. And I appreciate passing just as much as anybody. But the fundamentals and the root of this game is about big, strong men pushing other big, strong men.
1: Yeah. And, and speaking of that, you as a big, strong man did something that no one has ever done before and probably never will ever again in the history of the NFL. And we'll talk about that after we come back to this quick break with Joe Thomas. Hey, today's episode of Half Forgotten History is brought to you by Zelle. Zelle's a great way to send money to family or friends, no matter where they bank in the United States. I use Zelle, it's in my bank app, and I send money to my kids. Even though they're in their mid-20s, and they still want money from dad. Nobody's ever off the family plan, trust me on this. With the holidays coming up, you can even discuss splitting the cost of a holiday dinner at a restaurant with friends and family, or splitting the cost of a gift to send to your parents between all your siblings. Simply sending the gift of money, which is also a good idea. Uh, paying an individual craftsperson for a unique handmade gift or paying your friend back for your portion of the ice skate rental, ski vacation, whatever. You get the idea. Remember, money set goes straight into the recipient's bank account, typically in minutes between enrolled users. And you don't have to download another app because it's probably in your banking app already like it is in mine. So look for Zelle in your banking app today. All right, back with the... Eventual Hall of Famer, in my opinion, first ballot, Joe Thomas, longtime uh, member of the Cleveland Browns, now does great work for the NFL Network breaking down games. The streak, Joe, streak. You never missed a snap in your entire career until you missed your first one, and that was the end of your career. 10,363 consecutive snaps played. It's the longest streak in the history of the NFL that we know of because I think it only goes back to 1999 when snap counts, but I can't imagine that anything would be close of it. When did you start becoming aware of the streak? Who was the first person that said, hey, you might be doing something that's never been
0: done before? I want to say it was around year like six or seven. It was um, one of the media guys had said something to me about, you know, hey, I, I'm looking at these snaps and, and I realized that, you know, you you haven't ever come off the field. And I go, yeah, now that you said something, I, I never have, like, There was never any time my shoe fell off. I'd never have been seriously injured where the trainers had to come out and help me off. Like, I've had injuries. I've had surgeries and stuff. But, like, they were sort of things that you could take care of after the season. And I'm like, can you look into that and just see, like, hey, is that – I mean, it may may be a record, may not be a record, but why don't you check it out for me? And so the Browns media team kind of did some homework and said, hey, as far as we know, like – you're you're up there. Like, <laughs> you're getting pretty close. And it was kind of at that point in my career where I started um, paying attention a little bit to it. Maybe not like focusing on it, but I knew for sure that if something happened in a game, I was going to do everything I could to stay out there at this point. Obviously, it was injured. You can't Help that. But um, if the shoe fell off or something, I was thinking about maybe calling a timeout. You know, the coach says, Hey, me and the quarterback are the only ones that call timeout. But I was thinking, you know what? I might make an exception. If I'm at like 9,989 and my shoe falls off, I might be wasting one of those first half timeouts.
1: <laughs> so at, at what point, when you were aware of it, like you said, did it become a badge of honor? At what point did you turn it into the thing that kept you going?
0: Well, I think once I got to 10,000, it kind of became officially a a badge of honor. Obviously, it's such a big a monumental number. And I knew I wasn't going to get to 20,000. <laughs> so um, 10,000 was a big deal. I started getting a lot of pride in it, but it was funny because the lead up to 10,000, I started getting a little bit nervous, right? You start yeah. kind of waking up occasionally at night, a little bit more often dreaming of like the bad ways that the streak is going to end before you get to that 10,000 number. So there was a lot of relief on my end. Once I got to 10,000, and I did kind of check that off and it was recognized as the NFL record. And it was obviously a big monumental number that I could really feel a lot of pride about.
1: I mean, people need to understand, like you've you sort of alluded to it, like you could snap a shoelace, right? That could force you to get off the field. A shoulder strap could come undone underneath your pads. Something could go wrong with your helmet. I mean, it is it is a remarkable streak and a, and a, and a testament to your determination but there is some freakish luck that has to go along with it as well.
0: Yeah, no question. I mean, there's a, there's very few positions on the field that will ever even have a chance to break that type of record because <laughs> most other positions have some type of rotation. Like receivers, no chance. They rotate. Quarterbacks, if you're really good, you come off the field when your team's winning. And so if you're really good, you're probably going to be on a team that wins a lot, and so you're probably going to get a few snaps off here and there. Defensive linemen, they all rotate safeties, maybe safeties, maybe corner, maybe linebacker. I know London Fletcher played a lot of games, but even those guys, a lot of times situationally, whether it's goal line or third and long or some type of strange end of half scenario where you're going to sub those guys out and you're going to put receivers in there for like the jump ball, Hail Mary in the end zone. So there's so many things that can happen at other positions that really offensive linemen about the only ones that have a chance to really be on the field for every single play. And I think part of the luck almost, which is kind of funny, is the fact that I played for a bad team. So we were never in those blowout scenarios where the coach was like, hey, we got to get Joe Thomas off the field. You know, we don't want to get our all-pro left tackle hurt and a blowout win. So I was always out there because we were usually down by 21 in the fourth quarter trying to make the valiant and uh, unsuccessful comeback Doing the two-minute offense, um, so I think there was a tremendous amount of luck that was involved in that record.
1: Okay, let, let's let's say there's a hypothetical situation now. You're 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 past nine thousand, and you have ten thousand consecutive snaps in your brain now because that's something you want to get to. What if a Coach had said to you, "Joe, we're down by thirty. Let's sit this series out." Would you have said, "Hell no, I'm going back in," or you would would you have done it?
0: It's actually kind of funny because. I want to say it was year like eight or nine, somewhere in there. We were playing against the Steelers and it was a season that we went seven to nine and and we started out pretty good and then we kind of fizzled at the end. But we were at home and we were beating the Steelers by like three scores. Like we were kicking their ass finally. Like this was the most exciting, fun game of my life. Finally (laughs) kicking it, kicking the ass of our crosstown rivals. And the coach who was the offensive line coach at the time, He didn't know that I had a streak going. And so he actually sent in my backup into the game, into the huddle at a timeout to take me out of the game. And so he comes into the huddle and I look over my right shoulder and here's Vincent Painter standing there. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he he taps me, he goes, I got you. And I'm like, You don't got me, like, I I don't think you understand. Like I've got this record going on and I'm kind of enjoying myself for once on the field. So I'm not coming out right now in the fourth quarter. You better find somebody else. And so he like starts running back to the sideline. Thankfully, it was a timeout, and then the O line coach is all confused, and he's like, "No, no, go back, get somebody else." So he like comes back, and um, Joel Batonio was the left guard at the time, and he tries to sub out Joel, and Joel's like, "Nope," he goes one of this, he goes <laughs> to the right guard, the right guard gives him one of these, he goes to the right tackle, it was Mitchell Schwartz at the time. And goes like this. So then right before we're about to break the huddle, Vince runs back off the field, and he never got in the game, which was it was pretty funny how it worked out like that. But after the game, I told the coaches, hey, I appreciate what you were trying to do. Don't get me wrong, but, like, I don't want to come out right now, especially because of the streak, but also I'm kind of having some fun. So let's enjoy this for once. Did the coach say, my bad at that point? Yeah, he was like, oh, my bad. I'm sorry. I had no idea there was a streak because it wasn't something that we talked about. I mean, I knew about it. The yeah. media people knew about it. But obviously – it was a personal individual record that had nothing to do with team success, so it's not like we were discussing it in offensive meetings or anything like that.
1: I feel like this is the offensive line equivalent of that classic scene in 2013 when the Broncos were playing the Raiders, and they are up 41-17 to in the fourth, and Osweiler was told he was going to go into the game to replace Peyton Manning, and Peyton just jogged onto the field. That's a great cutaway of Osweiler looking at him and going, oh. Right, fine. You're going back into the game. I feel like this is the whole line version of that moment. Yes,
0: yeah, exactly. The, the unseen and unheard, almost similar to the Peyton Manning moment. Thank
1: you. <laughs> well, the, the, we will get into a Joe Thomas-Peyton Manning story in a little bit. That, that will come <laughs> up. But uh, before we get to that, October 22nd, 2017.
0: 10,363 snaps in, and you snap a tendon. Did you know right away that it was over? I did. So leading up to that game, well, first of all, I I talked a little bit about my knee and and how bad that was. So I couldn't really practice my last few years in the NFL. And my last year, it it was so bad in my knee that I couldn't even stand at practice and watch anymore. So I would just lay on the training table. I was getting it drained almost every day. Injections, the whole thing. Basically, I was crutching around the facility. I was sliding down the stairs on my butt. And Sunday morning, I was like, all right, let's get the the, the band-aids ready, tape this dude up, do whatever we can to get him on the field. And it was really wearing, on me mentally because of not only the pain, but like the fact that I couldn't do anything. Like I was swimming and that's when I started swimming. I was swimming to try to stay in shape because I couldn't do anything else to be in shape. I couldn't even ride the bike. My knee was so bad. So I kind of knew that like the wheels are kind of falling off physically at that point. But then also... I started having a lot of elbow pain. Um, And so we started looking into the elbow and we noticed like I got all these bone spurs and I could tell my tendon was sick is what they kind of said based on the inflammation. And so um, they were just kind of like, but there's nothing we can do. So you might as well just go out there and see what happens. So I'm like, all right, here we go. So in that game uh, against the Titans, we were blocking just a normal inside zone. And I remember... um, finishing my guy as the ball carrier went by and I kind of threw him with my left arm. And as soon as I threw him, I could feel that tendon just snap and I hit the ground. I grabbed my elbow and it didn't hurt as much as I expected it to, but it yeah. still didn't feel good because I couldn't extend my elbow at all. I mean, my tendon, my tricep tendon snapped, so I had no movement there. So I kind of knew that like, Hey, when you snap a tendon, it's a long rehab process, Achilles tendon, tricep tendon, sometimes bicep tendon where it is like those are, 16, 18 eighteen-month rehabs, and at this point in my career with my knee, like this is probably it. But I, I mean, I didn't really have a chance to savor it because obviously I was laying there crying about my elbow. But yeah. still, I, I kind of had a sense that that was that that was certainly the end of the streak, and that was probably the end of my career. That's a lot to process in one. It is one five-second yeah. play. Like,
1: like, yeah. when did it really hit you? Like you say, this probably like was it when you're sitting on the sidelines, or was it after the game? When did it really sink in? Like, I just played my last play.
0: Yeah. So right after I got hurt, they took me into the locker room and they've got an x-ray machine there. So they did an x-ray, doctor evaluated it and he was like, yeah, you probably tore your tricep tendon. I'm like, yeah, I kind of knew that. He's like, you know, we'll get an MRI and kind of confirm and then decide, but you know, we'll probably do surgery Monday, Tuesday, or you know, pretty quickly when you have those tendons, you don't want them to uh, roll up. Um, And so I sat actually in the training room and I watched the game On the TV, I can still close my eyes and kind of like remember the smell of the training room as I was watching that game. Um, And it was a very surreal moment, right? Like playing in the NFL is so special. Um, Being able to play 11 years, especially for a franchise that I became so close with and a city that I loved so much. And you're sitting there and kind of watching like your football mortality and you're kind of starting to think about stuff, but you also don't want to like process it all at once. Because you still want to be there to kind of support your teammates, so it it is a weird feeling that it's like sort of a the ultimate high and ultimate low at the same time. Um, that is difficult to process. But um, when the guys came back in the locker room, there there was a few tears in my eyes when when the guys weren't watching. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, listen, you've always been the loyalist
1: of loyal uh, in terms of your commitment to wanting to be there in Cleveland. So why don't we take our final break and come back? Uh, with a little bit more with Joe Thomas. So stay with us. We're coming right back. Hey, this episode of Half Forgotten History is brought to you by Intuit, the company powering products like TurboTax, QuickBooks, Mint, and Credit Karma. If you're looking to budget for maybe a huge trip to a football game or maybe going to play some great golf at one of the top places in the country, Mint's smart budgeting tools can notify you before you overspend, create categories for you, however you want to budget your money. For anyone out there using TurboTax Online, their error recognition tool catches mistakes that you might've missed. Like when I input bank information to get my tax return. If I misplace a digit in my routing number, which is bad, my refund could get delayed for weeks. Luckily, Intuit has my back and will detect common errors like these on the fly. So you can correct it and get your return on time. QuickBooks help you manage your business all in one place, from tracking everyday expenses to being ready for tax time. You can also send invoices, receive payments, run payroll, and track future cash flow right inside QuickBooks. It's as easy as some of the plays our guests have made on Half Forgotten History. Intuit works for what you work for. And whether that's a small business or just you as an individual, Intuit's innovative products make managing your finances and setting yourself or your business up for success very simple. Discover how Intuit's innovative products can help you see what's possible at Intuit.com back with Joe Thomas here on half forgotten history. And you, you made a point like there were many opportunities when people wanted you to go play somewhere else and and you turned them down.
0: You wanted to see this thing through in Cleveland. Why was that
1: so important to you?
0: Well, I think loyalty was always something that was really important with, with me growing up. You know, that was just one of the values that my mom and dad kind of taught me. And Barry Alvarez taught me at Wisconsin, you know, he had a coaching staff that was with him for a very, very long time at a period of college history, college football history that to this day, most college coaches are there for what, two, three years, and then they go somewhere else. You're either promoted or you're fired. Um, And I think I just kind of grew up with that loyalty being very much a value that was built early on. And also I grew up a Packer fan, And in an era that, you know, players didn't change teams all that much. And additionally, getting into Cleveland, I fell so much in love with the city, with the organization, and my dream was always to be part of the turnaround and to be there when this once proud franchise was brought back to life and they had this great period of success. Because I can't think of a better thing to enjoy during your career than to turn around a once proud franchise in a great city full of incredibly passionate football fans, um, and to be there as part of the ride. Like to me, it it feels a little hollow to just go to a team and then win a championship and then leave because you weren't there when it was being built from the ground up. Really like that idea. So additionally, as a football player, every year you got to convince yourself somehow to get the most out of yourself that this is our year, right? As a fan, like you go through the draft, you go through free agency, you're like, we did all the things right. We got exactly the players we need, and we're going to finally win the Super Bowl this year. Even though you're delusional, right? And I was yeah. clearly delusional, um, but I had convinced myself that we were right on the cusp, and we finally found the quarterback. Um, and so, part of me really believed it—that like I want to be here, and the last thing I want to do is to go ask for a trade or to be traded somewhere else and to miss out on this. Yeah. I had FOMO. Yeah, just so people understand, like the the Browns were
1: terrible at this time, yeah, we were and horrible. you had arguably <laughs> one of the greatest players in the history of the NFL. Call you on a team that went on to win the Super Bowl that year, Peyton Manning and the Denver Broncos in 2015. He really wanted to get you to Denver. In fact, he wanted to get you so bad he asked you to do something that would guarantee you would be traded.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was pretty funny. So um, Ray Farmer was our general manager at the time. Um, Sashi Brown was a president or something there. And you know, we were, were not very successful. So their, you know, job status was a little bit up in the air, but the Broncos had just lost their all-pro left tackle, Ryan Clady. Peyton Manning, obviously the quarterback, needs protection. He's not going to run around like he's Lamar Jackson. He needs that left tackle that's pretty solid. So once they lost Ryan Clady, there was a lot of conversations between the Browns and John Elway about, hey, what do we got to do to trade for Joe Thomas? Because we know this is kind of a year that we have a chance to win the Super Bowl, right? They were kind of putting all the eggs in those baskets. Once they got Peyton Manning... They were re- willing to mortgage the future a little bit to try to win those Super Bowls. Um, so there were some conversations, and I and you may have to ask them. I don't know what the offers looked like, but I think they were pretty aggressive and pretty realistic offers. But um, the Browns organization, the front office, I think was nervous that if they did trade me, sort of one of the good things that had happened in Cleveland in the last right. decade that may be the coup d'etat to their career, especially if I continue success and play there. And the guys that they get maybe weren't outstanding or didn't pan out to be as great as they'd hoped. If there was draft picks, certainly the Browns have a history of wasting draft picks. So I think that they didn't want to have on their Wikipedia page to be known as, hey, the guy that traded that guy from Cleveland that was pretty good that one time. Um, So the best part though was I get a text as I'm watching uh, Sunday Night Football one day and it's from a number that i didn't know but it was a denver area code and it said hey what's up buddy this is your drinking buddy from the pro bowl and i'm like who the hell could this be i mean you pretty much drink with everybody when you're at the hawaii <laughs> pro bowl and then i'm like ha ha who is this and he's like peyton and i'm like oh he goes give me a call so i'm like all right so i call peyton and he's like what do we got to do to get you in a broncos uniform and I'm like, well, you know, I kind of gave him the same spiel I gave to you. I, you know, I really love it in Cleveland. I think that, you know, maybe we're not playing all that well this year, but I feel like we got a chance and I don't want to miss out on a chance to turn this franchise around. And he goes, but we're going to win the Super Bowl this year. <laughs> and he said it like that. And I'm like, you know, you're probably right. You guys are pretty good. But, but I'm like, I, I don't know. I, I just don't feel good about it. He goes, look, I talked to Elway. He said, the Browns don't want to trade you. They're not going to do it unless you really put your foot down. So he goes, why don't you go up into Ray Farmer's office, pull your pants down and take a shit on his desk. And he's like, that's about what you have to do. And they'll trade you the next day. <laughs> and I was like, Peyton, I appreciate your sense of humor and I love your strategy, but I don't think I'm willing to do that to get out of Cleveland. And so thus I stayed in Cleveland and then the, Browns, the Broncos ended up going on and winning the Super Bowl, just like Peyton said.
1: Yeah, well listen that, it would have been a very brown moment uh, for lack of a better term, if you had done it um but you know in some way Joe I, I I'm glad you did because you you're not on the team anymore but you're sticking around you're seeing the resurgence in the team and, and you work yeah. with the team and you do a lot of stuff for the browns so maybe in hindsight this is where it's all going to be you won't be a part of it as a player but you'll be part yeah. of his an organization and the ride to see them get back to where the Cleveland Browns have been before on the upper echelons of the NFL
0: Yeah, it really has been a lot of fun, especially watching a lot of the guys that are on the team right now. I did get an opportunity to play with, you know, Joel Batonio. Miles Garrett was a rookie when I was in my last season. I got a chance after I got injured to really mentor him through the second half of the season, kind of helping him break down film on offensive tackles and talk about, hey, these are your weaknesses. These are what these guys don't do very well. This is how you should attack them. Um, And so I really enjoyed building those relationships with a lot of the guys that are the core and the foundation of the team right now that potentially could win a championship this season. So, um, in my own twisted mind, I feel like even though I wasn't going to be there when they do win a championship, hopefully soon, I've, I'm hoping that, um, the guys that are there appreciate the, the foundation that was built, you know, before that they got there and some of the work that we put in to try to help give them a little boost in the right
1: direction. Well, listen, I always appreciated you and respected you as a player. I love what you guys are doing now and what you're doing with the team and also uh, with the NFL Network. And I just, I, 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 wanted to make sure I got you on the show because your story is one of the best uh, that I've heard in the last uh, 10, 15 years in the NFL. So, listen, I, I know you're busy. I appreciate the, taking the time with us. And uh,
0: best of luck and continued success in your broadcasting career, okay? Hey, I appreciate you having me on, Trey. This is always, always a lot of fun when I get a chance to talk to you. So
1: thanks again to Joe Thomas. That Peyton Manning story is one of the greatest I've ever heard, and now you've heard it too. So we go from Joe Thomas this week, a guy whose job it was to block really tough defensive ends, to a guy who made it really tough for offensive linemen to block him, outside linebacker Sean Merriman. Lights out dance. You know him. He was a phenom. That's next week on Half Forgotten History. We'll see you then.